All right, guys, so my name is Jordan Adams. I'm the, the teaching pastor here. We'll be going uh, into Ecclesiastes 6, closing that out, and then spending the majority of our time in Ecclesiastes 7. Um, so I want you to imagine that there was a large influx of investment into medicine and medical research. But imagine that the investment was only placed towards diagnostics. All right, so, so we get a few years down the road and we've gotten really good at diagnosing illnesses. And so you're able to uh, go into the doctor or able to go to the hospital and they can kind of scan your forehead and it gives a readout of exactly what's wrong with you, everything that's wrong with your body, which would be utterly incredible, right? Especially some of you in our community that have struggled with figuring out what's going on in your body. That'd be amazing. But imagine if we didn't get any better at treatment in the process. So in other words, you were able to go in and figure out what's wrong with your body, but you had no way to actually solve the problem. The ability to be better at diagnostics would actually just add frustration to your life. It wouldn't be that helpful. <laughs> and, and some of you felt like that's what Ecclesiastes has been like to this point, that it has just consistently diagnosed the problem with the human condition and with the world and with you, but it hasn't offered solutions, which... I, I don't think is entirely true, but, but I also can see where that would be a little bit of how we're experiencing Ecclesiastes to this point. But the book will start to take a shift as we get into chapter seven, where it will move from a higher percentage of di diagnostics into actually offering solutions to the problem. But before it does that, it's got to give a summary of the diagnostic question. So look at Ecclesiastes chapter six, verse 12, it says this. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Okay, so nice chipper start to our day. Uh, welcome to church. Happy holiday weekend. Here's the summary of verse six. Life is meaningless and short and we're all gonna die. All right, so that is the diagnostic of Ecclesiastes. And, and when we bump in to that apparent meaninglessness of life, the response that we have to that typically that's intuitive for us actually makes the problem worse because typically when we bump up against meaningless or apparent meaninglessness in our life, our tendency will be to try and manipulate our lives and the circumstances in our lives in order to make ourselves happy. In other words, almost every human being on the face of the planet is investing their lives in the pursuit of happiness, which is a really great movie, but a terrible way to live. And, and that's what Ecclesiastes is arguing because the teacher of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, has had everything you could want in life. He's had riches, he's had women, he's had, he's had wisdom, he's had influence. And he says he systematically tried to use those things in his life in order to make himself happy. And he's found out that everything has failed him. So the pursuit of happiness is a really great way to waste your life and actually to make you really unhappy is what he's arguing. So that's the diagnosis of the problem with the human condition and with the world from Ecclesiastes. But let's take a look at the treatment. And so when you flip the page over to chapter seven, here's what we'll see. In the first 13 verses of chapter seven, the word better will be used six times. So it'll say better is fill in the blank. And it'll give an example of the better way to live. So he's going to start describing for us the best way that we could possibly navigate life. 
and it connects to the overall theme of the book, which we find out particularly at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, which the better way to live life is to live in the fear of the Lord, which leads to wisdom. But like a lot of treatment, it in the moment isn't always fun, but produces long-term benefits. And so, so here's what I mean by that is the wisdom that he's gonna talk about with us today in chapter seven is primarily wisdom related to really difficult, really sad, really heavy times, which obviously fits our current situation. And so I wanna look at Ecclesiastes chapter seven through the lens of how we handle, how we respond to things like COVID and the discussion about race in our culture. So what would be the wise way to respond to something heavy and weighty like what we're all walking through in this current moment? So the first thing I want to do is rapid fire point out some ways that he says in in this chapter uh, that we could respond that lack wisdom. And then from there, I want to look at ways that we can respond with wisdom to really weighty, heavy times. All right. So first, the ways that lack wisdom. One way that we could respond to difficult circumstances in life, whether it's kind of the, the, the circumstances going on in the world or maybe it's more personal circumstances for you, maybe it's big, maybe it's small. One of the ways that we tend to respond with a lack of wisdom is through anger. Look at Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. All right, so anger is for fools. The more angry you get, the worse your life gets. Now, is there an exception to that rule? Yes. Is there a certain thing as righteous anger? Yes. Did Jesus have righteous anger at times? Yes. But I think Christians overplay that card a little bit because maybe Jesus was able to get angry and still be righteous, but how good at that are you? Because that doesn't usually work well for me. Essentially, every time I've been angry in my life or almost every time I've been angry in my life, I look back on it and actually might have started out as righteous anger, but it turned into sinful anger. And so how do you fight it? Well, you repent of it as sin. And so, so here's what I mean by that is our temptation is to play off our anger as if it's someone else's problem, as if it was created by them. But Jesus actually said the opposite thing on the Sermon on the Mount where he said, if you're angry with someone in your heart, it's like you've committed murder against them. He actually puts the onus and the weight of anger on the person who's getting angry. But but our instincts are to say, I'm angry because you made me angry. No, no, no. You're angry because you made you angry. And so we repent of anger as sin and recognize our responsibility in it and don't let ourselves off the hook. And we recognize that even if we're trying to do the right thing, even if we're trying to solve problems in our lives or we're trying to solve problems in the world or we're speaking into problems in culture as Christians, if we do it in anger, we're likely going to make the problem worse, not better, because we're not functioning out of wisdom. And so if we show up to these current cultural conversations angry, the reality is, is we're, we're doing what we should do as Christians in that we're running to the emergency. We're running to sort of the fire in culture, but instead of bringing water with us, we're bringing gasoline and we're just creating a fireball. We're making the thing worse with our anger. Something I heard Mark Vance say, a pastor in our network that was really helpful for me is he said, stop having arguments with people that aren't there. So here's what he meant by that is 
Isn't it so easy to have an argument with someone in your head? You read something on social media and you fight back with that person or maybe it's your spouse or somebody in your family or something like that. You have this ongoing dialogue with them in your head. And have you noticed how you always win those discussions? And then when you actually talk to a real human being, it's not quite as clear as it was in your head. And so what happens when you have arguments with people in your head is it does two things. It puffs you up with pride and you think that you're always right and don't consider what someone else has to say because you're not actually in dialogue with them, but you're just creating a caricature of them. So it puffs you up with pride, but it also fills you with anger, just the self-righteousness that you prove to yourself that you're right instead of actually talking to a person. So have patient, loving conversations with people. Stop arguing with people in your head. The next way to respond to difficulty challenges in life that is not wise is nostalgia. All right, this one was brutal for me because I'm a big nostalgia guy. I'm a, you know, and it's, and it's the 4th of July and the 4th of July is just ultimate nostalgia for me. But look at this verse seven or excuse me, chapter seven, verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. All right, so I hope that you had some good old fashioned nostalgia this weekend. You grilled some burgers, hopefully watched some Sandlot, did all of that stuff. But it's actually unwise to too deeply invest in nostalgia or to kind of let yourself go there because here's the tendency that that will create in you as you will create an overly simplistic picture of the past and you will inevitably think of it as better than it was. And so what that'll do to you individually is it will cause you to have a lack of contentment with the current moment. And Christians in general, I think, tend to do this on a, on a macro level where we look back at the morality of the past and we say, oh, back then or at that period in America or that period in the world, that's when people were really moral. And if we could just get back to then, then culture in the world would be okay. People weren't moral then. <laughs> like if you read the Bible and the ramifications of sin and the infectious disease that is sin, there's no way that you possibly conclude that at any point in history that people were significantly moral. It was just a different type of sin. It might've been an older brother type sin as opposed to a younger brother type sin, but people were still sinful. The world was still broken. And what nostalgia will do is it will rob you of the ability to, to live in the present moment and see it as a part of God's hand and design for your life and for the world. That this moment that we're in, every moment that you're in is not an accident, that you need to get out of, but it's something that's been given to you by God to live for Christ in that moment and to grow in your wisdom through the experiences that he's offering you. And I think a common theme that I've noticed in my life and that I think we can see throughout the chapter is when we deal with things that are hard, we have this tendency to escape. That's what nostalgia is. And I think there's another form of escapism that he's warning about is when you try to escape all forms of sadness or weightiness by having sort of this overly lighthearted glib view of the world so that you don't have to experience pain. You pretend like there's not sadness or brokenness so that you don't have to go there. And that's also not a wise way to navigate the world. 
And sometimes we tend to be unwilling or afraid to embrace and feel pain. And so we instead ignore it and pretend like it doesn't exist. And some of you guys are tempted towards that in this current moment. You've been tempted towards that with COVID. Somewhere along the line, you just started pretending like it's not a thing and kind of waiting for it to be over. But then again and again, it keeps coming back up. Or some of you experience that when you watch church on Sunday mornings. You're feeling this sense of, man, I wish that we could just go back to normal. Like, can we just stop talking about all of the hard things in culture? Can this just be a break from that? And guys, I've felt that a little bit as I've gone to preach. There's things that I'm just like, I just don't want to think about this. I don't want to talk about this hard thing. I want to quote unquote, go back to normal, but that's an escapist mentality that I don't think Ecclesiastes chapter seven would support. So as I was studying for this, I came across a pastor named Jason Lim who had this, uh, little true false quiz that he gave to his, his congregation based on Ecclesiastes seven. So I want to, I want to do the same thing for you. I want you to just answer this honestly in your mind, whether these statements for you are true or false. All right. First one, laughing is better than crying. Second one, weddings are better than funerals. Third one, birthdays are better than deathbeds. All right, so if you answered any or all of those as true, you might be lacking a little bit of wisdom from Ecclesiastes 7, which is so odd, but it argues this directly in the text. It says crying is better than laughing, funerals better than weddings, deathbeds better than birthdays. Listen to this, uh, verses two through four. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Okay, so I want you to look back at chapter 2. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. He just said it's better to go to a cemetery than to go to a party. Like, let that sink in how, how counterintuitive that is, how deeply strange that feels. How, doesn't that just not resonate as true with you? But here's the reality, it is true. And if we were to understand what the Bible says about the fallenness of human nature, that all of our minds, because we live in a fallen world and we're fallen people, that our minds, our morality, our instincts, our intuition is all corrupt and confused, it wouldn't be that surprising that things that are true seem deeply odd to us. Right? Our morality is like my, my Aunt Lori used to have this old school TV with like bunny ears antennas on it that you had to adjust the antennas in order to get a signal. Here's the reality. Our morality antennas are not in the right place. And they're just coming back with fuzz and we can't see the world correctly. And so we need to have the courage when there's dissonance, dissonance, when there's tension between what we intuitively believe to be true and real and what the Bible says is true and real, we have to have the courage to be able to lay down our own intuition to pick up the morality of scripture. And I think we need to do that here. And so here's what Ecclesiastes is advocating for with these verses. It's what Drew mentioned. It's the biblical category of lament. And lament is actually a really prominent thing in scripture. I think about a third of the Psalms are actually lament Psalms. 
But we tend to miss that. We tend to get the, the warm, fuzzy Psalms and quote them and hang them on our walls. But actually, a lot of the Psalms are unbelievably sad. They're, they're about lament. And we've got the book of Lamentations. It's a biblical category. And here's what lament is. It's a realistic look at the world. It's a willingness to deeply experience the brokenness of life in the presence of God. So I think that last qualifier is really important. A willingness to experience the broken life, but in the presence of God. The, the way that this book that I've been reading, so I've been studying lament for a while here because I've heard from uh, some of my black and brown brothers and sisters that this is a really significant and important thing for them and, and that I should understand it. And on top of that, COVID and everything that's going on pastoral, I've been studying lament because I feel like it's not something that I've understood well. And I've been reading some books on it. And I read this book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy that I think is really good. And this is what he said about lament. Lament stands in the gap between pain and promise. All right, so do you catch what he's saying here? He, he's saying there's promises that God has made to us about the way that the world should be and the way that the world will be one day. But those promises haven't come totally true yet. And so right now we experience the pain of this world and ourselves not being the way that we should be. And so lament is what you fill the gap with between that pain and promise. Now, the other things that we'll be tempted to do is ignore the, the pain and pretend like it's not real. Or the other thing we could do is get angry at God and start to bail on our faith. But lament is saying, no, I believe you, God. I believe that you're faithful, that you're going to come through on your promises. But I don't know when, how, or where, and it's really hard right now. And so I'm going to come into your presence with faith, but in honest recognition of how difficult this moment in my life is. That's what lament is. Now, he is not saying in Ecclesiastes that sadness is categorically or universally better than happiness or that you should never be happy. In fact, over and over again in Ecclesiastes, he recommends the simple enjoyment of daily life. That's not what he's saying here, but he's saying when it is the moment to be sad, it's better to embrace that experience of sadness fully and to learn from it and grow from it than to try and run from it because we don't want to feel it. He's, he's encouraging us away from that escapist Christian veneer thing. So it's, it's a context thing. He, he, he's saying it's, it's like this. If someone shows up at a funeral in flip-flops and a t-shirt and is laughing in the back of the room and telling jokes, what is that? It's deeply offensive. It's, it's, it's wrong. Not because there's anything wrong with flip-flops and t-shirts and jokes, but because that is not the moment for behavior like that. When you're at a funeral, it's not the moment to be laughing. And here's the reality of our lives is that we're at a funeral. Here's what I mean. Look back at verse two. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Okay, he says, this is the end of all mankind. What is the this in that sentence? It's death. Death and mourning is the end of all mankind. You are dying. Everyone who you love and care about is dying. The vast majority of the world not only is physically dying, but spiritually dying and will be separated from God forever for an eternity. And Solomon says, we need to take that reality to heart. Can I ask you, have you taken that to heart? 
Have you gone there and felt that? Have you mourned the reality that you've got one life to live this side of eternity and that you've wasted a lot of it in foolish living that all of us have? Have you been willing to admit to yourself that you're not invincible? That your deathbed is coming, that you will have to face eternity? And that the way that you live now and what you believe now will affect you and the people who you love for eternity? Have you been willing to face it, to take it to heart? Are you willing to go there? Are you willing to let your behavior in your life be transformed by that really difficult but incredibly important reality? And beyond that, there's a specific community in our world and in our church that uniquely feels this. Our minority brothers and sisters and our minorities in the world have felt like they've been living in a funeral for a really long time. And they've been living in lament for a long time. And they're wondering if we're oblivious to their pain. They're wondering if we'll enter into their pain with them. And in general, the American evangelical church has not been very good at lament. It's not a category that we understand well or we know how to enter in with well. And historically, we have not been good at lamenting over racial tension and brokenness. And let me get more specific. I have not been good at lamenting in general, and I have not been good at lamenting racial brokenness. I've talked about it. I've cared about it. There's people in my family who've been deeply affected by it, but I haven't done well at knowing how to enter into your pain. And I'm trying to learn that. I'm trying to figure out how to feel this pain with you. And in, in church, our minorities, brothers and sisters are, are saying like, why aren't you crying with us? Why aren't you feeling this moment with us in the way that we feel it? Why aren't you weeping over the systemic realities of racism that have plagued our country. And, and here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by systemic realities of racism. I think we can understand some of the context of that by going to the Bible and understanding what scripture says about the human condition, that sin is not just an individual act. It is that, but it's more than that. It's an overpowering force that we've introduced into the world that has wrecked God's good world. And so sin has embedded itself in the collective consciousness of human culture. And the, the culture and the systems that we've built up perpetuate sin, selfishness, and ignorance in the human heart. And lament is one of the ways that we can enter into that reality and repent of it and walk away from it personally. To empathize. So I want to read you this quote from Dark Cloud's Deep Mercy about this topic that was really helpful for me. And it's an extended quote, but I want you to hear this. Lament has the potential to provide a first step towards uniting people when hurt and misunderstanding are in the air. The sacred song of sorrow does not resolve all racial tension or injustice, but it does give the church a prayer language of compassion and a starting point towards understanding. For those of us who have not experienced pain or uh, unfair treatment because of our ethnicity, lament can be the language we use to weep with those who weep, Romans 12:15. It allows our first voice, our first step to be one of compassion. We can turn to God in prayer and join our minority brothers and sisters in their pain. We can identify the brokenness in our world, mourn the racial tension that still exists, and offer our complaint to God about the history of injustice, misunderstanding, and racism. 
Together, we can ask God for healing and for kindness in our hearts rather than allowing racial tension to drive a wedge between us or to frighten us into silence. Lament can invite all of us on a journey towards seeking God's grace together. The beauty of this biblical language of sorrow is its ability to provide a bridge robust enough to handle outrage and empathy, frustration and faith, fear and hope. Lament can be our first step towards one another when racial tension could drive a wedge. All right, now I wanna clarify something. I am a firm believer that the primary message of Jesus Christ in the gospel is good news. That the primary message of Christianity surrounding the racial conversation is that the, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down in Christ. That Jesus actually can solve this problem that we're seeing in the world. And yes, not fully on this earth, but he will solve it finally forever one day when he brings his redeemed people together before himself. That Jesus actually has hope and a solution to this answer. That is our primary foot forward. And we want that to be true of our church. But the reality is some of the bad news, some of the lament of what's happened helps set up that beautiful good news. And I think we see that in the life of Jesus. I think of Jesus going to the tomb of Lazarus. So he goes to the tomb of Lazarus and he knows that he's about to heal him. He's about to raise him from the dead. But what does Jesus do in that moment right before he solves the problem? He weeps. He weeps. Because his weeping said to the people around him, that this is wrong and that it matters and that their pain matters. And that's part of what I'm trying to learn to say to people in my life is that you matter, your pain matters. It's valid, God sees it, he cares, we care, you're not alone. And this isn't a, a political issue, this is a biblical issue, it's an image bearer of God that the fingerprints of God are all over every human being and every human being therefore is value of dignity, worth and respect. And so what that means is, is that we also need to lament and cry out and stand up for injustice on things that are not as culturally popular right now. So I also need to be willing to lament personally and publicly the fact that I drove past a clinic today where children, unborn children are being killed, image bearers of God. We need to, to stand up and cry out on behalf of those voices who can't do it for themselves. It's not okay, it's wrong. God knit them together in their mother's womb. And so we, we hate that, we cry over it, we lament over it, and we lament alongside of the women who are in this incredibly difficult place, who have experienced unbelievable pain and difficulty often, sometimes because of our culture, that have put them in a difficult circumstance. We lament alongside of them, but we lament alongside of those children as well. We lament the sexual brokenness in society. We, we lament the fact that pornography is contributing to the enslavement of women all over the world. And we cry about that and we hate that because God hates it. And so we join in his voice in that because he loves his image bearers. But lament is not just something that you do for other people. It's also something that you do for you. I want to show you this. Verse three, sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Question, how could sadness make gladness. It sounds like kind of like a cheesy nonsensical catchphrase. Sadness makes gladness. Like it just, it, that, that feels odd to us. Well, 
I, I think the key to this is in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. We've talked about this before in Ecclesiastes. I think it's one of the foundational theological frameworks of the book is that all circumstances, if you are in Christ, if you trust Jesus, are given to you by God as a gift. And so whether there are circumstances that you really enjoy or there are circumstances that are really difficult, really hard, and really sad, here's what you know is true, is that God is using those circumstances for your good. And even if they have aspects of evil in them, God is manipulating those circumstances for your benefit and has given them to you for a reason. And so what that means is, is whatever circumstances we can encounter in life, we can have peace, hope, and trust in God through them. Our hope is not in our ability to identify and manipulate our circumstances into what we want them to be. It's to accept the circumstances we've been given as gift and to trust God to be good to us in the process. Have you ever sat through a thunderstorm in a screened in porch? So I, I did that this week. I was sitting in my screen and porch and I started to watch this storm rolling in. I knew it wasn't a dangerous storm. There were no tornadoes or anything like that. And so in theory, it was completely safe. But the wind started to blow through the trees and I saw the clouds start to build up and move towards me. And I started to get a little, I, I felt myself get a little anxious about it because typically when you're outside and a storm is coming in, you pick up your stuff and you go inside. You go inside to hide, Right. And so I was starting to feel a little anxious about it. And then I, I had this conversation with myself where I was just like, dude, you're fine. Like, you're not, you're not going to get wet. You've got protection from your screen and porch. And once I did that, once I realized that I wasn't going to get drenched by this downpour, it fundamentally changed my perspective on the storm. And it was beautiful. It was so cool. Like, you feel like you're outside in it, but you're not getting soaked. It's so fun. And so I was able to just sit there and enjoy the beauty of the storm. I think the Christian life is a lot like that. Is that we're not removed entirely from the world. We're not removed entirely from the storm, from the chaos, from the pain, from the suffering, from the confusion of the world. We're out there in it, but the reality is from a macro perspective, we are entirely protected from it by God. That doesn't mean we won't ever feel the consequences of our sin or the sin of the world, but it means that from a grand perspective, God will use all things for your good if you are in Christ. And he will one day redeem you to himself and so you can live in the storm, but be protected from it. But it's really difficult to remember that. And so you can feel like you're going to encounter all of the detrimental impacts of the current moment and you can live life in fear. But if you're able to believe, if you're able to convince yourself that God's got you, then it can change your perspective on the moment that you're in and you can start to see the beauty in the middle of the chaos. You can start to rest in the middle of the storm. And ultimately, the, the, the primary way, realistically, the only way that you're going to be able to have faith like that is looking at the historical reality of what Jesus Christ has done for you. The reality that Jesus took on the storm for you. That it's not just that he asked you to embrace adversity, but that he walked into ultimate adversity on your behalf. He willingly went to the cross he trusted God in the middle of adversity coming his way, in the middle of pain, and he cried out Psalm 22 on the cross. He cried out a cry of lament on the cross. 
And because he was willing to trust God through the pain, God glorified him and established him as the unquestioned king over the universe. God brought goodness and redemption out of struggle and adversity as Jesus trusted him and he paved the way for us. And as we look to that reality of what he was willing to do for us, that can start to transform us into the type of people that can live life that same way, who are willing to walk through adversity in pain, in lament, in brokenness, in honesty, but in faith. One of the coolest church services that I've ever been a part of was actually in Turkey, in the country of Turkey. And um, I got to go to a Turkish church. And so it was in Turkish and I didn't actually understand what they were saying, but it was one of the most worshipful experiences I've ever had in my life, partially just because that was a really cool moment, but because their worship was so genuine. Their, Their joy and gladness and trust in God was like palpable in the room. And it caused me to worship, even though I didn't fully understand what was going on. And in a few of the broken English conversations I got to have with them after that service, I think I realized that the reason why they had just that beautiful faith was largely because faith for them had been really hard. It's hard to be a Christian in Turkey. And the reason they were so joyful was not because they had better circumstances within their Christianity than I did. The circumstances were actually worse. But in those circumstances, they had lamented, they had depended, and they had found Jesus faithful. And it produced, the sadness produced gladness in their souls. And I think this might be a moment for us as a church to learn that reality to learn how to lament the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in our lives, to find dependence on Jesus Christ and to find him worthy and good in the middle of that brokenness. And so let's do that as a church. Let me pray. God, I pray that that would be true of us. We can't do that on our own. We can't just resolve to be people of hope and faith We can't resolve to lament and trust instead of um, getting angry or bailing on the pain or bailing on our faith. We can try, but ultimately we need you to do that in us by your spirit. And so Holy Spirit, would you please produce faith and hope in us? And would you produce lament in us? Lament that honors you and draws our hearts towards you and also honors and comes alongside the people who are hurting in our lives. Help us to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Help us to embrace this moment of heaviness and sadness as a gift from you and not try to escape it, but trust you in the process. We need your help and your power for that, Jesus. Amen.